in this season of a Christmas season, I'm doing a series that I've entitled Steadfast Love. I began last week uh, defining what it means to live well while we're waiting, um, how to wait properly, and how to nurture hope. And I've entitled this series Steadfast Love, and it comes from a, a Hebrew word that is pronounced, best I can do, chesed, uh, chesed. And uh, what that steadfast love, again, in many translations, it's translated um, unfailing love or mercy or kindness or loving kindness was actually a made-up English word um, for, for Scripture. Like that word didn't exist in English until there was a translator trying to capture what this word means um, in English. And he made up a word, loving kindness. Loving kindness was that word. Well, I picked steadfast love. That's how the English Standard Version translates it. And it speaks of a character trait of God. And uh, this season where we're caught up in kind of a frenzy of marketing and shopping and more parties than you and I care to, to go to, um, I, I just, I personally don't feel that the church witnesses very well. And I'm not talking about like evangelizing, talking to people about Jesus. We as a church should always be doing that. But in this particular season, the church kind of finds itself um, either caught up in the frenzy and just kind of paints a religious veneer over a, a secularization of this holiday. Um, or it kind of just turns its nose up and uh, kind of just ignores what's going on or becomes cynical. And uh, I'm deeply concerned about the church living as faithful followers of Jesus um, in our world. Because our world is, is quite a mess. Um, and if that's a, surpri a surprise to you, um, I don't know how long you've been alive but, or how much you're paying attention uh, but I, just as a pastor, as a father, I want to live well in the midst of my generation. I want to raise my children as faithful followers of Jesus. And a season like this is where my children are going to get mixed signals from the world, um, where the world all is, is kind of caught up in, in a holiday season. And then um, over the course of time, I don't know exactly how long, there's, it's just become secularized, and, and it's just this generic holidays um, where the celebration is more like celebrating family or, or celebrating time off of work. I'm not entirely sure if you remove you know, Jesus from it, what you're exactly celebrating, but culture's tried, and it's done a pretty good job of it. And Christians just didn't know what to do about that, so we just got angry and bitter. Uh, and I'm, I want to live well for Jesus. I want to witness of Jesus well in today's culture, because the most important thing I can do as a follower of Jesus is live in such a way that when people see me, they see Jesus. Amen. That's our calling as followers of Jesus, is that we live in such a way that when people see you, they see Jesus. And as a father, the most important thing, raising my children, my five children, is to raise five disciples of Jesus. That is the most important thing. Their education, though important, is not more important than them being a faithful follower of Jesus. Them being involved in sports, it's important. My wife and I were both very active in sports and athletics, but never at the compromise of following Jesus. Never, never at a point where when faced with, do I, do I spend more time actually engaged in things that move me towards worshiping Jesus, or do I spend time engaged in things 
that make me a better athlete, if that was ever put up against one another, um, both sets of our parents, it was no real decision. We did the things that, that moved us towards living a life worshiping Jesus. And I'm concerned about parents raising children, um, thinking that, you know, once a month you go to church and occasionally see a few Bible verses uh, read by parents that, that parents think they're raising Christians. Uh, and, and it's not the case. Uh, and, and I believe the church is absolutely critical if you and I are going to raise Christian children. Uh, I believe the church is absolutely critical to that. And so my concern for the church in uh, our country, and I know that in our online church we're reaching around the world, I have very similar uh, concerns and some of the same concerns for, for Christians in specifically the West, but it really all over the world, that we just don't know what it means to follow Jesus well. Um, we get caught up in all sorts of movements. We get caught up in all sorts of frenzies in our world, and we play some of the same games that, that people who are not followers of Jesus are playing, and we think that if we just beat them at that game with a little bit of Jesus veneer over it, we'll make Christians out of it, and it's not the case at all. Um, and this particular season, I have personal wrestling with that I'm, in a sense, bringing our church along with some of my own journey. In no way am I trying to force anyone to celebrate anything. Uh, I, though, want to inspire you, challenge you, maybe even motivate you a little bit to really, really dig down deep and discover why am I following Jesus and what does it mean to follow Jesus well in this world and not just look like the secular counterparts of our world just with a little bit of Jesus sprinkled in, but to actually craft our entire life with Jesus at the center. Jesus isn't just maybe um, the, the, the first important in a long priority list. Um, we can sometimes think, well, God first, and, you know, we just start arranging a priority list. And I'm not saying there's anything necessarily bad with that. Um, I just don't think it's built on a proper perspective because it assumes that you put the most investment and time in your top priority and then less time and investment in the next priority and less time and investment. When Jesus is a far more in, interested in being supreme and being centric to our entire life to where every other priority is organized around Jesus, not just underneath Jesus. And in this time and season, um, Christians just say, we don't know what to do. We don't know what it means to follow Jesus. We're trying to shove uh, keeping Jesus in, in, you know, keeping Christ in Christmas. We're trying to shove that like it's a cliche down everybody's throat, or we boycott anyone who doesn't keep Christ in Christmas. And it's just, it's, it's not working, guys. Like, let's just face it. That's not working. So what's going to work? Well, like I said last week, um, the church actually wrestled with a lot of this in its history and, and for 1,700 years, far more than you know, companies are trying to market to you have been around. 1,700 years, the church organized an entire season to pay attention to Jesus in a unique way. Not because this is a season where we just um, pay attention to Jesus, and then that excuses us for every other season to not pay attention to Jesus. No, but to, to actually take time to center ourselves and ground ourselves in what it means to see Jesus specific in the incarnation, in his birth, and what that means, and how that brings us um, in between two advents. The first advent of Jesus, where, where God's character 
was revealed and his faithfulness was revealed and Jesus fulfilling. There's a, a, right around 108 prophecies of Jesus' birth and he fulfilled 100% of them perfectly. Fulfilling 10, 10 prophecies. This is just a little bit of nerd for you. Um, if Jesus fulfilled 10 prophecies, keep in mind, he fulfilled 10 times that, almost 11 times that. If he just fulfilled 10 of those prophecies well, there is a chance, one in 100 quadrillion chances, that he would have fulfilled 10 of those promises. And yet he fulfilled 10 times that. It tells you how intelligent God is. It tells you how much he remembered every single promise he ever made and knew exactly how to place himself in this story in Jesus. And so why would we not take time to celebrate that? Of course we celebrate the incarnation all the time. But let's be real, we don't. We get busy, right? We get distracted. Um, we go through highs and lows in life. And we just sort of trail off. Have you ever um, really tried to pray every day? Like you determined, I'm going to pray and read my Bible every single day. And five days in, you forgot what your commitment was. You're just like, oh man, it's been like two days since I've even touched the Bible. I haven't even thought about the Bible in two days. Right, you see, we have every good intention, but we don't organize our life around something like that. And yet Jesus' invitation to us is to organize our entire life around him and to be intentional about that. And this season is a great opportunity to take unique, concerted effort to organize our whole, our whole life around him. And the way I wanted to bring that out to us is to emphasize a facet of God's character, his chesed, his steadfast love, that tender, affectionate, caring commitment to his word. And if he's been faithful in the past, in the first advent of Christ, he will be faithful again in his promise of the second advent of Christ. And we live in between that. We live in between those two advents. We nurture memories of the past of God's faithfulness and then we nurture our hopes. Remember, I said last week, hope, my definition of hope is a proper perspective of the future that creates a positive attitude in the present. What is our proper perspective of the future? Our proper perspective of the future is that there will come a day. I don't know when it is. Many people feel like it's soon. It's imminent. It's about to happen any second. And I hope they're right. But let's chill out for a second and recognize that Peter and Paul both said, like somewhere like 1950 years ago, that we're in the last days. So we are in the latest of the last days. And I certainly hope that the coming of Christ is just on the horizon any second. I hope that. I desire that. I would love for that to be certain. But what the church has done for darn near 30 years, for over 30 years, the church has said, it's going to happen any second, any second, and we make no plans. We actually don't try to live faithfully for Jesus. We just try to bide our time and just hope we make it all the way to the end. And then a year goes by and we write new books crafting a different year because it's got to be this year because we missed it on that last year. 
And then a decade goes by, and we start living disillusioned and wonder if this is ever going to happen. Come on, guys. Do we not have the patience and peace to live longer than a decade waiting on the coming of Christ? Here's the deal, guys. It's going to happen. God promised it. And that means it's going to happen. But just like God promised to Israel the coming Messiah and made a covenant with King David, it's going to happen, a covenant. And about 950 years go by before he fulfills it. Guys, our hope is set that Christ will come again, and that is a proper perspective of the future. And when he comes again and unleashes new creation with new heavens and new earth, everything that's been wrong will be made right. Everything that's been broken will be healed. Everything that's been unjust, God will bring justice in its finality at that moment. But you and I are okay if it doesn't happen for 950 more years. And we need to live in such a way that we nurture that hope of the future and then carry those hopes along and faithfully pass them to the next generation for them to nurture those same hopes. And so it's great to think, okay, there will come a day he will make all things right, that everything that's broken will be healed. Everything that's unjust, God will bring justice. That's great about the future, but what about now? Right? See, that future that is promised, and just as, though, just as God promised and met his promise because of his steadfast love, not him just gritting his teeth trying to bear with us until finally he can, he can make it happen. No, he's tender and caring and faithful to his promise. And just like he was faithful in the first advent, he will be faithful again. And that proper perspective should then create a positive attitude in the present. Now, that positive attitude becomes, uh, what, I, what I said last week, it becomes a bold proclamation that present reality is not ultimate reality and that our life is not tethered to our present circumstances and feelings. But we got to face it, our present circumstances and feelings are real. And present reality is present reality. Like, it's real. So what... Like, what is that proper attitude? What is that, that, that positive attitude that we are to nurture that isn't contingent upon happy feelings? It isn't contingent on pleasant circumstances. And that we as the people of God can, can and should live in such a way that our lives are not so determined by every election cycle. And that our lives are not tethered to the, the, the good, uh, an, an upward-turning economy. Like, we have to have a bigger perspective than that, and that perspective then create a different attitude. And that's what I'm more deeply concerned about as a pastor and as a father, that my children see that, that I am not in flux with every change of circumstance. And I'm going to have real emotions and real feelings about all of those circumstances, but I'm not tethered to that. I don't live my life in such a way that, that my good feelings are contingent upon my pleasant circumstances. So what is that? And with a word that we would use to try to sum up all of those hopes and all of that positive attitude is peace. The word peace. This is what we long for. We, we like, okay, like I said, it, it shouldn't shock no one that the world is profoundly messed up. It is broken, Right? And it needs healed, not just fixed, it needs healed. 
And everybody has all sorts of plans as to how they're going to make it right. We, 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 want, we want people, just anybody, like, like people, to live with a sense of harmony. To live like not so determined by fear and anxiety. To not live by, by the feelings of hate and anger. And, and every attempt, it seems like, to try to solve that makes us more afraid, makes us more anxious, more angry, and more hateful. Right? And it's, it's because we think that we have to, we have to get this sense of uh, being free of conflict. We have to assert ourselves to bring that peace. And, and peace, though in a biblical context, is far more than just the absence of conflict. Okay, the absence of conflict, that would be good. Right? I grew up in a family of four. So I have three siblings, an older brother and two younger sisters. And like now as a parent of five, you just like, there's moments where you just want to go, can we just get along? Yeah. <laughs> like, like just, just give, just give us like, t- do you think we can make it 10 minutes and not fight? Uh, we, I mean, I, I rock a minivan. Okay. Like, I'm proud of that. It's awesome. <laughs> Called the black bullet. It's awesome. I rock a minivan, but you cram five children from one to nine, in that van, in that small piece of metal, hurling at 75 miles an hour down the highway, you want the absence of conflict, right? And you never get it. It's like, we just have some peace, right? Okay, peace. So yes, we want absence of conflict. We want nations to just get along, right? We want political parties. Can we just not argue for like 10 minutes? Just, just 10 minutes, can we just not fight? Okay, yeah, we, need, we want that absence of conflict. But that is not the total summation of peace, especially in the biblical context. The, the Hebrew word, now, our Old Testament, I, I don't want to take this for granted, that there's, maybe you're new to Scripture, maybe you're new to church, maybe you're new to Jesus, and you, you see this big old book that we call the Bible, and you just don't know what's going on. Okay, there, it's divided into two parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament, and not over-describing all of that, but just so you know, the Old Testament, the original language it was written in was Hebrew, and the New Testament, with a little of exceptions with Aramaic, um, but the New Testament was written in Greek, and so just kind of learning how language uses words is important when you're reading, and not just assume you know what every word means or what the author is intending by a translated word that we translate peace. Well, the Old Testament word for peace was shalom. It was used... Um, as a greeting, and it has meaning behind it. And in the New Testament, Irene, um, it's where it's a root, it's the root word um, where you get names like Irene. Okay, and Irene means peaceful or being at peace. So Irene and Shalom. Okay, so um, what this is, the, 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 the most basic definition of that peace or Shalom was wholeness or completeness. Um, in the notes that are on our app and will be available with this video on the website, um, I put a bunch of different like Old Testament references where it refers to various things. Like um, one of them is that, they, that Israel, when they crossed the, the River Jordan with Joshua, they were to build an altar for peace offerings, for shalom offerings, with shalom stones. And what they mean is like a stone that is perfect, no cracks in it, it's whole or complete. Um, 
It's, it's used for as a verb. Shalom is used as a verb. To shalom something is where you get a little better sense of the definition of the word. And so you can shalom an unfinished project. So it's referred to in 1 Kings that Solomon shalomed the temple when he completed it. So it's like he put that last bit of brick in there and sealed it. It was shalom. It was whole or complete. Um, in Proverbs 16, there's a reference to uh, you can shalom a relationship, a relationship that's fra- uh, fractured, bringing reconciliation or healing to that relationship. You can shalom that relationship. So that's, that, so that's how we're getting a sense of peace. You're bringing peace into this. And so what, it, what the definition would be is that, that something that's complex with many different parts being in a state of wholeness or completeness so like a brick wall, or, or think of like your vehicle. Your vehicle um, is a lot of different parts that all have to work together. And when it's not in a state of shalom, you got to take it to a shop and pay more money than you thought, right? So, okay, yeah, you with me? Okay. So the idea is that life is complicated, and it's very complex. Life has many different parts to it, relationships and situations. And we desire our lives to be in a state of shalom or erine. It, a state of shalom, a state of wholeness or completeness. That with any part of our life is out of alignment. Whether it be like our job or a relationship or, or maybe a near relationship, like a family relationship. When it's strained or fractured, you get that sense where you're lacking something. You lack a sense of wholeness or completeness. A sense that things are right. That things are right. And so you want our lives to be in a state of shalom. And we want our world to be in a state of shalom, right? That the complexity of the world. Listen, you're not going to oversimplify Um, our world. Our world is complex. It's unnecessarily complicated too, but it is complex because there's, you know, 8 billion human beings who have complex uh, lives. There there are nation states and and politics that are complicated, okay? They're complex, but we don't want them fragmented and out of alignment any more than you want your life fragmented and out of alignment. So we want it to be in a state of shalom. And this shalom is what we're intended to live in the present, not based on everything in our life being in a state of shalom, but us being put in a state of shalom, us being made right, us being set in a place of peace. Well, Israel's kings were supposed to bring this shalom into the nation of Israel. Israel was intended as God's covenant people to be a light to the world, to show what it looks like when things are right with God, we get it right with each other, and we're to bring that peace, that shalom to the world. And that Israel and the king of Israel was supposed to bring that shalom, and every single one of them failed. Even the one that was named son of peace, Solomon, failed at this. But Isaiah was able to look into the future and see, based on a covenant that God made with David, King David, in 2 Samuel 7, God made a covenant that there would be a king from his lineage that is going to be the king, the one to build the temple, to build uh, the house of God, and that he would establish God's kingdom, okay? And about 300 years go by. And about 20-something kings after David, and all of them failed. And Israel, by the time of Isaiah, was in a worse state. 
And no matter how many efforts a king would put out to, to bring a state of shalom to his people, it just wouldn't work. As a matter of fact, every effort would make it worse. But Isaiah could look out into the future and see a day where there would be a king. And this is what he prophesied in Isaiah chapter 9. And this, in this holiday and Christmas season, this is the one we hear the most. And I want to try to put some gravity into this, okay? I want to try to show you how important this is and how weighty it actually is and how much, like, this impacts us rather than just being a Christmas card verse. Yeah? Okay, so a little bit of my cynical side is coming out on that. All right. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government, the kingdom, the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Shalom, the Tsar of Shalom, Tsar Shalom, the Prince of Peace, His dominion, his kingship, his ruling authority will bring shalom. And then he continues in verse 7. Of the increase of his government, his kingdom. You just hold that for a second. The increase of his government, his kingdom, and of shalom, there will be no end. There will be a king... Who, who will be a son of the Most High, the, God, the Son of God, who will be a prince of Shalom. And when this king comes, this prince of Shalom, the whole government will be upon his shoulder. And that government and of Shalom will just continue to extend into the uttermost parts of the world. That's what, that's what Isaiah is seeing, that this king will come and he will establish peace. And that peace, the borders of that peace would just keep extending and extending and it would be forever. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, so we, a king will come in the lineage of David to establish it, to get it set right and uphold it with what? Justice and righteousness. To, to make people right and to make society right. Yeah. To bring peace to people, righteousness, and to communities, justice. So this extended government and peace will be limitless and it will be established at the individual level and at the communal level. Justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And so Isaiah prophesied this king would come He would be a king, let's just make that very clear, a king, and his kingdom would establish shalom, not just absence of conflict, but things being made right, things being in a state of wholeness and completeness, and that government that gets established, the borders of it will just keep going on and on, and that peace will just go on and on and on and on, and you know what happened like, I don't know, 60 years later? Jerusalem fell to a foreign nation state, Babylon, and they went into exile. And 580 years go by after that, after the fall of Jerusalem. So, so you've got about 650 years that are going by after this promise that there's going to come a king. And by the time you get to the days of Jesus, the world is under the Western Empire of Rome, the Roman Empire. And the, the major propaganda piece of Rome was the Pax Romana. 
the peace of Rome. And what their peace was is they would send the most hostile and, oh man, like the most powerful army, the most brutal army the world has ever seen, they would send them on campaigns to brutally rape and pillage, and whoever's left, they would tax heavily. And you have the peace of Rome. That's peace. You can have our peace, you pay your taxes, and don't rebel. You do things our way. If you do things our way, you'll have peace. But you're going to pay for it. And if you don't pay for it, there is a, you know, Roman garrison that would happily slaughter you publicly to make a point out of you so that nobody else thinks the bright idea of not paying their taxes. That's the peace of Rome. And in this tiny little backwards town of Nazareth, an angel shows up to a teenager. Mary was not much more than 15 or 16. It's almost unanimous in the scholarly world. A teenage girl. And the angel Gabriel makes this statement in Luke chapter 1. In the sixth month, the sixth month of the pregnancy of her cousin Elizabeth. You can read that. In our reading plan last week, we read Zachariah and Elizabeth's story. This week, we're going to be reading um, the story of Mary. The angel Gabriel was sent from God to the city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary or Miriam, uh, literally. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was a bit confused, a little troubled at that saying, and tried, like, what does this mean? Verse 30. And the angel said to her, don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And pay attention to this. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And then look at this. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. See, this is, the Gospels are, are, are wanting us to see that all of history was moving to this pinnacle, this climax, that your whole Old Testament, your whole Bible is a one unified story that leads to Jesus. And the Gospels are trying to show you all of these promises, all of these covenants, all of these words, all of these hopes that have been casted out from century to century, even 600 and something years earlier, now are getting answered in Jesus. And what Isaiah could just look out and kind of look into a fog and yet see and prophetically proclaim, there will be a king that will come and he will establish God's kingdom and that kingdom will bring shalom, will bring wholeness, completeness, things being made right in people and in the world and that king will come and will establish it. And Luke is saying, hey, that's Jesus. Jesus becomes the climax of this story. Jesus is the prince of peace. He is the king. See, what this, this, this contributed to a little bit of my, my cynicism is that Christians 
well-meaning, good-hearted Christians seem very content to celebrate a baby Jesus, but to kind of keep him perpetually a baby. Because a baby Jesus makes little to no adult demands of you and I. He's a cute little baby. Now, that's incredible that the God of the universe, the Son of God, would fully participate in humanity, including being a helpless baby. That's incredible. But that's not the end of the story. His life, his death, and his resurrection and ascension elevated him to king of all kings. Lord of all lords. We, we don't use that language like king and lord very often. And now it's just become this kind of spiritual word that a Christians kind of throw around every once in a while. Him being the lord of your life. Him being king. And, and we, we miss maybe the gravity of what this is. And that's why I wanted to show you Isaiah. That, that this is not just baby Jesus. That's an incredible thing. That God so participated in humanity to be a helpless baby, but he did not remain a baby. He has been crowned king of kings. And so sometimes because we, don't, we, don't, we still see a broken world, we try, to, we try to make sense of that by saying, well, he's king, but of another time and place. In the future sometime, in, in, in another place, heaven. And... and, and now, because we just kind of push his king and his kingdom, his kingship and his kingdom to another time and place. Well, now we're just, we're just kind of on our own. We've got to figure this out ourselves. And so even good-hearted, well-meaning Christians get caught up in all sorts of power plays, thinking that if we can exert enough control and power, we can have peace. What do you think is going on in our world? If we've, if we've, if we've successfully pushed God into the periphery, which is Western world has pretty much succeeded at that. What do you think is going to replace God? Government. Government and economy. Because power and possession become God at that point. And if we think we could just have enough, we'll have power and control. Our life will be complete if we just have enough. Or if I have enough power, my life will be whole and complete. I can do what I want. And Christians play that game because we just sort of push Jesus' kingship off to another time and place. Or we spiritualize it, well, he's king of my heart. Which is, I mean, that's a good first step, y'all. Like him being the king of your heart. But what about the king of your pocketbook? What about the king of your relationships? Um, What about the king of, you know what, I'm just going to pause on the whole examples Because he's not stated as the king of our heart, though that's true. He's not stated as just the king of heaven, though that's true. He's stated as the king of kings. And after the resurrection in Matthew 28, he makes a very clear statement. All authority has been, past tense, given unto me. He's in charge, guys. He is in charge. And all attempts at bringing or making peace that is not in surrendered humility before him will be failed attempts. And sort of spirituality is, is in the last about 15 years, it's, it's, it's 
it's kind of made some type of small little revival. So there's not as many angry atheists out there as you might think. They scream really loud, so you might think that there's more of them, but I promise you there's not. Um, what there is, though, is a general sense of spirituality. And, and, and it's kind of put under the mantra, spiritual but not religious. And we sort of become uh, curators for ourselves of our own privatized religion. And so we're spiritual. Um, and, and in the name of being spiritual, we want to work and act for the common good. That's a noble thing, working and acting for the common good. And we want to bring peace, but we have become kings of ourselves. And we have our own strategies for making and keeping peace in this world. And so political parties and governments, not just in America, but around the world, have plans and agendas that they think bring wholeness or completeness to their nation. And companies that they want to do good, they want to use their wealth to bring good into the world. But any attempt, however noble the endeavor, any attempt at making peace, when it's not surrendered and in partnership with the Prince of Peace, who his kingdom and only his kingdom is the kingdom without end and the kingdom that brings peace. His kingdom is the only kingdom of peace. If we do not live in surrendered partnership with him, all attempts at making and keeping peace in our world will fail, and it's the same with our personal lives. We will not be people of peace. We will not possess peace if we think we are in the driver's seat, if we think we have to control it, if we think we have to make things up, we have to assert power and control over our life and arrange it perfectly for wholeness and completeness. If we do not live in surrendered partnership with Jesus, all attempts at making shalom, irene, in our world will be failed. And this is what I desire for us as a church. The whole New Testament makes astounding claims about the peace of Jesus. That Romans 5 says that it is him who made peace between perfect holy God and broken frail humans. He makes peace even to the point where Ephesians 2, uh, Paul says Jesus is our shalom, our irene. Jesus is our peace. He is peace. And what he promised while he was with his disciples in John 14, he says this, John 14 verse 27, Peace I leave with you. Irene, I leave with you. My peace. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives. Think about the world that gives peace around him. It was the Pax Romana. It was peace by the sword. Follow this government, obey your taxes, and obey, we'll have peace. He says, that peace, that's a terrible kind of peace. The world is going to try to give peace, and it ain't going to work. But my peace I give to you, it's not like the world gives that I give it. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. This in one verse, and there's a whole context around that, says what, what I believe to be an opportunity for the church of the Lord Jesus in the world today. When everybody else is afraid, our world is plagued by fear plagued by it. And we're doing all sorts of insane things because we are afraid. 
instead of being anxious and, and, and participating as an epidemic of hate and anger, um, an epidemic of despair and hopelessness, this is an opportunity for us, church. Like not just getting content with cliches of keeping Christ in Christmas. Come on, let's go deeper than that. Because we, we could have all sorts of cliches, but if our life is just as anxious and afraid as, as those who don't know Jesus, what's the, like, what kind of witness are we? And we, you and I, are not promised a, a peaceful life. We're promised peace in the midst of all that. Like your circumstances are going to fluctuate. We all live in certain political contexts. We have to figure out how to live in peace in the midst of those contexts. We all, we all, all of us around the world, we, li- we each live in some type of economic situation. And those economics are, have highs and lows. We hope that they don't get too low, <laughs> right? But, but, I mean, come on. Like, we're not in control of that. And instead of being so anxious, we as the church have an opportunity to live weird, peaceful lives. We're going to look weird. When everybody else is angry and the church trying to be defensive and stand up for Jesus gets just as angry, that's a pitiful witness. And there's an alternative to recognize that God is a God of steadfast love. In the end, he will make all this right. And now I live in the present as if that's true. And what that looks like, living in the present, is peace. That I'm not, oh yeah, I'll have feelings. They'll spike. You know, problems happen and you get this emotional reaction and they spike. And that's okay. It's part of it. But at the end of the day, what we take time to celebrate, and that's this week in our, in our devotion, we're going to take time to, to look at peace, to look at what it means to trust that Jesus is in charge, y'all. Can I get any more Southern than that? He is in charge. It's going to be okay. No, no, what am, I'm in the middle of, that's not okay. But I'm okay because I can trust that Jesus is in charge. And I can work with him, not do nothing, but work with him to exercise that peace in the world. That's how his kingdom of peace gets established. Is because you and I live that kingdom of peace everywhere we go. We become peacemakers bringing reconciliation and healing to brokenness in the world. And peacemakers, Jesus said, are called the children of God. There's a psalm that is in the reading plan this week, Psalm 37. It's a long psalm, and I just put a section of it in the reading plan this week. But it emphasizes us trusting God and wait patiently for Him. And those who wait patiently for God... It says in verse 11 that they delight themselves in abundant shalom. As a matter of fact, verse 11 says the meek inherit the earth. Jesus found that verse so important that he quoted it in his most famous sermon. We get the opportunity to be weird, to be strange, to not be controlled by anger and anxiety, to not be controlled by fear and hopelessness, but to live strangely hopeful peaceful lives when our whole world is so trying to control it that they've lost all sense of peace. We get to be the light of God's peace and that peace 
is eternal. It has no end because we surrender to the Prince of Peace. Amen? I encourage you this week, um, if you've not already previously, uh, sign up for, if you want it through email, you can go to our app that has all the devotional content every day through from now till Christmas. You can sign up there for your email to get it delivered right to your inbox. Um, we've taken three or four times around the dinner table this week. We try to talk through some of these things with our children. And it's just a way for us to keep getting their minds oriented around God's word and his peace. Because, I mean, I got children like you. They're crazy at times. Not all the time. Just a lot. But not all the time. They, they're, they're excited about Christmas. They're hopeful. And they're also anxious and afraid. And we get to just be a source of peace to them as we teach them how to take a season like this and move our lives towards discipleship in Jesus. So please, please get involved in that this week. It's okay if you've missed last week. Start today in any way you can. Amen? Father, I love you and I thank you for what you've done. What you've done in Christ Jesus. That the revelation of your steadfast love was revealed in Christ Jesus. And so we see that as a sign of your peace breaking into this world. May we be people not controlled by fear and anxiety. Not be controlled by hate and anger. But to be people of shalom. Of irene. Of peace. We be people of peace. That witnesses of your peace. The peace that never ends. Into a world of brokenness. Into a world of despair, we can be your people of peace. Thank you for doing this by the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace of the Lord Jesus in us. And I pray all of this in his mighty name. Amen.